Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This is When Diplomacy Fails, my name is Zach Twomley and you are about to listen to the concluding episode of the Korean War series. The loss of freedom, tyranny, abuse, hunger would all have been easier if not for the compulsion to call them freedom, justice, the good of the people. Lies, by their very nature, partial, are revealed as lies when confronted with languages striving for truth. But here, all the means of disclosure had been permanently confiscated by the police. Poet and literary critic Alexander Watt, writing in his book My Century, published posthumously in 1977. 
You see, in the long run of history, winning the Cold War against communism is not the entire goal of mankind, nor even a great part of it. More important is the economic and political stability of the world and its people. Unless human well-being continues to be the major goal of the citizens of the world, the struggle between the United States and the USSR threatens to degenerate into the age-old game of world power politics. Power politics, not ideals. The downtrodden people of the world are sure of it when we take as allies cruel and ruthless dictators. Are we to have a series of world crises until we succeed in reducing most of civilization to radioactive debris? Historian C. Clyde Mitchell, writing in the International Journal, 1950. Even in former days, Korea was known as the Hermit Kingdom for its stubborn resistance to outsiders. And if you wanted to create a totally isolated and hermetic society, Northern Korea in the years after 1953, the Armistice, would have been the place to start. It was bounded on two sides by the sea, and to the south by the impregnable, demilitarized zone, which divided it from South Korea. Its northern frontier consisted of a long stretch of China and a short stretch of Siberia. In other words, its only contiguous neighbours were Mao and Stalin. Add to that fact that almost every work of man had been reduced to shards by the Korean War. Air Force General Curtis LeMay later boasted that we burned down every town in North Korea, and that he grounded his bombers only when there were no more targets to hit anywhere north of the 38th parallel. Pyongyang was an ashen moonscape. It was year zero. Kim Il-sung could create a laboratory with controlled conditions where he alone would be the engineer of the human soul. American journalist Christopher Hitchens, writing in Love, Poverty and War, Journeys and Essays, 2004. On the 20th of August, 2018, Lee Soo-nam, a South Korean citizen, approached the designated resort across the North Korean border. He was, all being well, about to meet his brother, a man he had not seen in 68 years. In an interview shortly before this reunion, Lee Soo-nam would describe himself as lucky to have the opportunity, but he added with a note of trepidation, I think there's going to be a lot of difference in the language, in the way of thinking, and the lifestyles we lived. I can't ask him what kind of jobs he's had and the troubles he's had under the North Korean regime. Han Xin-ja, a 99-year-old coming from the other direction, awaited the chance to see her two daughters, both in their 70s, after they were separated in the final moments of the Korean War and never permitted to reunite again. When I fled home in the war, was all Han Xin-ja was able to say before she choked on her words. She was old and she was frail. She knew that this was the last chance she had to see her children again. They had been children when she had last seen them, and the old, faded pictures she had depicted them as children still. Neither Han Xin-ja nor Lee Soo-nam were exceptional, for this day, the 20th of August 2018, was a day of much emotion and apprehension for the 89 families, representing some 330 South Koreans and 185 North Koreans. Many were in wheelchairs, many had hearing problems, had trouble seeing, or even bore old wounds from the war or from the regime. Some brought gifts from the south, but nobody brought cash. It was too risky that it could be confiscated. Instead, it was winter clothing, underwear, toothpaste, medicine, simple things that were given, whenever there was a chance. 
Family reunions typically contained high doses of emotion, but here at this scheduled North Korean venue, these families would have only 11 hours together before again being sent their separate ways. In that time, families attempted to find out as much about each other as they could. How many children do you have? Do you have a son? One mother in her 90s was heard to ask her 70-year-old eldest son, who had lived in South Korea since he had been a teenager. Others had hoarded clothes and gifts for their siblings or for their children in anticipation of this day. Whenever I saw pretty clothes, I always thought about how cute they would look in them, said Moon Hyun Suk, a 90-year-old woman about to meet her sisters for the first time in more than six decades. Other reunions contained no exchange of gifts, just long, bittersweet embraces and floods of emotion. How are you so old? Kim Dal-in, 92, asked his sister. I've lived this long to meet you, the 85-year-old said as she wiped away tears. Indeed, depending on where you came from, north or south, the process for selecting who was lucky enough to attend this reunion varied. In the south, a lottery was the only fair way to give the limited spaces away fairly to its citizens, while in the north, though we cannot be sure, loyalty to the regime and resistance to foreign influences was believed to be the most important qualifying factors. These Koreans who attended on the 20th of August knew that they were lucky because they knew that not everyone got to say their final farewells. Korea's Unification Ministry estimates that there are currently about 600 to 700,000 South Koreans with immediate or extended relatives in North Korea. More than 75,000 of the 132,000 South Koreans who had applied to participate in reunions have died, according to another ministry record. Those that had managed to hang on for this tragic and somewhat bizarre ceremony at least got the chance to say goodbye before being shipped back across the border and into their unnaturally divided lives. South Korean President Moon Jae-in was vocal in his support for more such reunions so that the pain of the meetings could be eased and could perhaps take place on a more regular basis. As Moon Jae-in well appreciated, Time is running out to expand the reunion program, and he added that it would be a shameful thing for both Koreas to see more elderly people dying without even finding out whether their loved ones were still alive. Moon Jae-in would know firsthand what this pain and shame meant. In 2004, the South Korean president attended a reunion with his aunt. As a separated family member, I deeply share their sorrow and pitifulness he said during a meeting with one of his aides. Unfortunately for a regime low on leverage, holding these reunions hostage is one of the few bargaining chips that North Korea still has, and Pyongyang remains determined to make the most of them. At the time the news reported on this reunion on the 20th of August 2018, a thaw was underway in Korean relations, aided by the US President Donald Trump's historic meeting with Kim Jong-un. Whatever your feelings on what was agreed to or achieved, the symbolism of that event was something to behold. Since then, though, Korean relations have followed a familiar pattern of blowing hot and cold for various reasons. As has always been the case with the Koreas, though, the high diplomacy and scheming attempted by men at the top of the government has its greatest impact upon the people, on their lives, on their families, and on their happiness. The tears and contentment are bargaining chips to North Korea's leadership, 
those critically important reunions merely par the course for a regime which struggles to maintain its iron grip on the truth and the people's understanding of it. It would be ideal to imagine that someday the division of the Korean Peninsula and the North Korean regime which holds the happiness of the Korean people hostage would come to an end. Hopefully the Kim regime and its dynasty will not last forever. Yet for so many families it is already too late. The Korean War's legacy has already lasted several lifetimes and it has outlasted the patience, energy and life force of far too many crushed citizens on both sides of the divide. And it was indeed the legacy of the Korean War which forced these people to run to either side of the division. Decisions made in the spur of the moment to leave children or family members behind because you would be returning soon. To flee now while you had the chance because a UN convoy was passing through and you wouldn't get the chance again with winter approaching. To run quickly, bringing not even a photograph with you because you had to make a split-second decision. It was beyond the mental capacity of any Korean to imagine in 1950-53 to that they would never see their families again or that they would only see them in a new century surrounded by cameras and strange lighting and colours, fawned over by carefully made-up aides and watched over continuously by others. It was a state of affairs so unnatural, it seemed impossible that it could be taking place, but they would accept it. They would take it for what it was, because on the 20th of August 2018, this was the first reunion in more than three years, one of more than 20 reunions since the year 2000, and they had been selected from hundreds of thousands of others and they were not about to let this opportunity slip by. Kim Kwang-ho was another such individual, now 81 years old, and given this precious opportunity to reunite with just a portion of his estranged family. In late 1950, Kim Kwang-ho's father had decided to flee from the approaching Sino-Korean enemy, and he decided at the same time to take his four eldest children with him. Kim Kwang-ho was only 13 at the time, but he was deemed old enough to travel. Kim's younger brother, Kim Kwang-il, was only nine, a four-year gap which led to a lifetime apart. We thought we'd be away for only three days or up to a week, so women and children were left behind to look after the house, Kim said. Kim Kwang-ho and his fractured family walked for hundreds of kilometres in the winter cold, with only the occasional lift from a passing car, and they made their way south for several weeks as the US-led United Nations forces fell back before the communist advance. In the end, Kim Kwang-ho and his family were among 100,000 refugees brought out in the Hungnam evacuation, one of the United Nations' largest civilian rescues of the Korean War, an act which also saved the parents of South Korea's current president, Moon Jae-in. When I got on the boat, I realised I will never be able to go back, Kim Kwang-ho said. It is still painful for him to remember the mother and younger brother which he left behind. The stinging pain of separation remains so vivid in his heart and he chokes each time he's reminded of his mother, but Kim is now aged and wrinkled and he struggles to hold on to even a faint memory of the faces of his loved ones. He recalls his mother crying after another of his brothers was killed earlier in the war, but he said, There must be something wrong with my head because I can't remember what my mother looked like. This wasn't helped by the family's inability to talk about what had happened to them in the years that followed. It was easier simply to try and put the past behind them, as one half of the family lived in the south, the other in the north. Talking about it just made each other sadder, Kim Kwang-ho said. 
So we just held the logging in our hearts. He wasn't the only one. In time for the reunion on the 20th of August, the Red Cross was able to inform Kim Kwang Ho that his younger brother, that nine-year-old he had left behind, was alive and well and would be there to meet him with the others. Kim Kwang Ho couldn't describe his emotions after learning of the news. He insisted that he would be able to recognise his brother because when growing up, they'd always been mistaken for one another and he believed they would still look the same. His joy was tempered, as always, by tragedy. The nephews he could have met, his once nine-year-old brother's children, they had died in recent years, and his older sister had died 12 years ago. Only he out of the family would be able to commit to this reunion. If she was here, I would be able to share what I'm feeling right now, because no one else knows, he said, adding that none of his children experienced the war or knew anything of the North. So I have no one to tell that I am happy or sad. When we think of the Korean War, I want us to think of these families first and foremost. This is the true cost of the Korean War. It is the true cost of Stalin's scheming and Kim Il-sung's greed. It is the face of civil and societal fracture, of tragedy on a large but also on a small family-sized scale. This is the Korean War, and this is what it did. It achieved on the Korean Peninsula at least very little or nothing at all of practical value, save for the maintenance of a southern regime which in time became less authoritarian, and a northern regime which became even more so. It saw the swapping of one communist utopian protector in the Soviet Union for another in the People's Republic of China. It guaranteed years of border tensions and skirmishes, years of nuclear standoffs, years of backwards, almost medieval attempts to bolster one's regime on the world stage, to talk the talk, even while the citizens couldn't even be fed. It cemented the existence of arguably the most repressive, secretive regime in history, an odd man out in today's increasingly globalised world. It helped to facilitate more than anything else the generations of misery and sadness, the creation of gaping holes in one's life which only the tearing away of family members can leave. This is who we should bear in mind when we talk about the Korean War, those millions it killed as well as those millions who were doomed in the years after to sadness. The Korean people bore the pain of decisions made at the global strategic level. They are the forgotten faces of the forgotten war. They are the true legacy of the non-existent triumph which the Korean War represented to both sides. Joseph Stalin, it is true, already had more than enough to answer for before historians began examining his role in the Korean War. But we can now say with a certain level of confidence that here is yet another atrocity which bears that vile man's name. Here is another nail in the coffin of the arguments of those that may try to rehabilitate him. Stalin instigated a conflict, regardless of the human cost. He cheapened the human lives which lived on this Korean peninsula. He neglected any peaceful or realistic solution, and determined instead to support a regime which could only be maintained by force and fear. He perpetuated the unnatural, sponsored the evil, and fought for the domineering, and then, once he had gotten what he wanted... He abandoned ship and watched his terribly effective plan succeed. Not until the 1970s would the People's Republic of China and the United States enter into any kind of meaningful detente, and by then, the relations of the Cold War had long been in flux. Those temporary strategic advantages which the Stalinist regime had once held from the results of the Korean War, having long since faded from view. But the Korean War lived on, not only in the division of the peninsula and the sheer difference of the two regimes. 
but also in the supercharging of the American military complex, which enabled its intervention and participation in the Cold War, and the eventual defeat of the Soviet brand of communism. Should we also blame the Truman administration for its role in the Korean War? Was there any other way for the United States to have defeated the Soviets in the end, without a conflict like Korea supercharging its military capacity? Certainly, the Americans could have intimated to Stalin that Korea was a region of interest, that it would defend Syngman Rhee's regime no matter what happened. This might have spooked Kim Il-sung, and it might have prevented the Korean War from ever erupting. At the same time, it may not. We know by now that the notions of good and evil are blurred in the Korean War. Harry S. Truman was a far more humane and decent man than Stalin could ever claim to be, yet he still did not do enough to prevent the Korean War from erupting. If you believe my research, then you believe that Truman viewed Korea as part of his wider plan. But if you accept the conventional narrative for Korea instead, and that's fine, even then Truman has a lot to answer for, as he remained so out of the loop, so ignorant of the facts on the ground, and his subordinates did even worse. Scheming as Truman was, immoral though the sacrificing of Korean lives undoubtedly was, the Korean War was not Truman's idea. This whole thing, this whole thing, would never have been possible without Stalin. Truman did, it is true, make the conflict sing the tune that he was looking for, but Stalin played that song first, and he made its performance possible through lies, manipulation and intimidation. But who were the baddies? Was it Mao Zedong who sought to defend his beleaguered regime from Western encroachment? Was it Kim Il-sung who wished to see his rule be extended over all Korean people? Was it the North Korean soldiers themselves who genuinely believed that they were fighting for a noble cause to rid the peninsula of its foreign Western influences and to bring equality to all the Korean people at the one time? It is of course easy to criticise all of these actors to lay the blame at Truman's feet, or Stalin's especially for what transpired. But what is not in doubt is that the ultimate losers of the war were the Korean people. The Korean people were still paying for the decisions made by those leaders on the 20th of August 2018, when they were brought so tantalisingly close to their families after so many painful years, only to be torn away again. The Korean people are paying for the Korean War even now on both sides of the border. Until the Kim dynasty falls, however or if that ever happens, Korea will never be truly free or happy again. This much is obvious. The division of the peninsula needs to end. Then and only then can the conflict which made that division possible truly be laid to rest. For so many Koreans, of course, it's already too late. This forgotten chapter of the Cold War remains paramount in their national identity and as relevant for them today as it was 65 years ago. Every now and then a blip on the radar makes the world news and we're reminded of that curious portion of the world where a strange and confusing conflict took place so many decades ago. We then go back to our lives, free to live as we like. The Korean people aren't free though. They're trapped by the consequences of policies made not in their name but in the name of power, greed, opportunism and so many other false idols. As the reunions of the 20th of August 2018 and so many others to come will remind us though, the purest qualities and sometimes the only thing worth actually fighting for are your loved ones. Hold your loved ones tight, history friends, and be thankful that your homeland has never had visited upon it such a tragic and terrible conflict as the Korean War.
So on that note, we're going to wrap up this incredible journey together. When we first began this series in January, I said I was going to take you all on a ride and that I was going to make you think and view the Korean War differently. Hopefully I have done that. If you enjoyed this winding story, this tale which took nearly 30 hours to tell, then make sure you spread the word in the usual way. After so long focusing on the grand strategic level, I felt it was only right to bring our story back to its roots and remember what it truly cost Korea above all before we say goodbye. My teachers always told me that the benefits of doing the conclusion episode last mean that you can fill it with everything you've learned after the event. I still remember being on the treadmill in the gym, just so you know, watching the news, and that bulletin about the reunion of those Korean families came up, and I just started crying, I couldn't help it, because here, I believe, was a more tragic and terrible example of the Korean War's legacy than any which I would ever find among the scholarly debate of stuffy historians trying to persuade us to adopt this method of thinking or that. Here, true to form, was the human consequences of such a wasteful conflict laid bare. I am, as always, happy to talk about this conflict with you guys in the usual places, but what I'd like to say I'm finished with the Korean War, it isn't finished with me. I cannot look at any of the actors or victims from this conflict in the same way again. Hopefully, having listened in, your appreciation and understanding of the war has been expanded and you're ready, somehow or another, for our next big project. Oh yes, we turn our attention from one cardinal error in the international system, that is, the Korean War, to perhaps the most infamous error in all history, certainly the most infamous in the history of conferences. The Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles that it spawned, we are coming up on the 100th anniversary of these pivotal events in human history. Like I had your attention and patience for the Korean War, I hope I will have it for this, the Versailles Anniversary Project. Please join me on the 11th of November 2018 for the first episode of that. But until then, history friends, my name is Zach, and you have been listening to the conclusion episode of the Korean War. I can hardly believe that we're actually finished this enormous series, but we are. All things must end eventually. And today, we lay the Korean War series to rest. Thanks so much for all you've done, history friends. You're the best. And I'll be seeing you all very soon indeed. By the way, if you made it to the end of this episode, it's my birthday. So happy 27th birthday today on the 30th of October 2018 to me. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.